This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by two One Heat Minute productions. The first, Increment Vice, 45 episodes, deep diving on Paul Thomas Anderson's 2014 masterpiece based off Thomas Pynchon's novel, Inherent Vice, called Increment Vice. Hosted by Travis Woods, produced by myself, Blake Howard, and narrated by the awesome Cat Corbett, takes... And a myriad of unbelievable guests through this sort of stoner noir masterpiece. Megan Abbott, Jordan Harper, Drew McWeeny, Matt Zoller-Zeitz, Walter Chaw, Karina Longworth, Ryan Johnson. Get listening. And if you're into fiction, it came from the deep. Maria Lewis, the host of our Josie and the Podcasts podcast, is here with her very own audiobook, It Came From The Deep, and an after show, co-hosted by myself. That's in its own feed. It Came From The Deep, Increment Vice, search them wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's get to it. Um, can I, uh, say something here? Sometimes it's, it's easy to forget that we spend most of our time stumbling around the dark. Suddenly a light gets turned on and there's a fair share of blame to go around. I can't speak to what happened before I arrived, but, uh, all of you have done some very good reporting here. Reporting that I believe is going to have an immediate and considerable impact on our readers. For me, this kind of story is why we do this. Having said that, Cardinal Law and the Catholic community are going to have a very strong response to this. So if you need a moment, you've earned it. But uh, I will need you back here Monday morning, focused and ready to do your job. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. 131st minute of Alan J. Pakula and Robert Redford's 1976 masterpiece, All the President's Men, is where we're up to. One of my guests I spoke to 121 episodes ago. And for any of you who have listened to all of those, thank you. And you're also lunatics. Um, another one of the people that I'm speaking to is really the the writer and the Academy Award-winning writer of a film that has come up almost as much as the film that they have written together. Um, so both of the films that these people are most notable for, I suppose, in the eyes of this show, have just been swirling around this entire time. And the opportunity to get them both on the show together, a Woodstein, again, not a comedic Woodstein as we've had in the past, but a Woodstein, I'm going to call them a hanger. I'm going to call them a sinner. I don't know which one they prefer better, but a hanger or a sinner, it's Liz Hanna and Josh Singer. Guys, thank you so much for being a part of all the President's Minutes. And Liz, thank you again for coming back. Thank you. I think we're going to choose the Sinner one. That oh, yeah. sounds way more fun. Sinner? Especially because when we get together, we normally drink to excess. So I feel like it's appropriate. <laughs> but we're going to make t-shirts for that. So as we're recording be a this, sinner. Be, be a sinner. Be a sinner with the A-H. Be a I'm, sinner. Be a sinner. I'm in. Um, sinner for America. Uh, as... Um, 
we, we were just starting to kick off for folks who are listening. It might be more definitive by the time they hear this because it'll be about a week after we record this or a week or so after we record this that people are going to be listening to the episode. But we're still right in the middle of uh, the deliberations and the fluff at the end of the American election where it seems pretty definitive for almost everyone in the world except for the Trump campaign that uh, that this thing is over and all of their legal pursuits seem like nonsense. But what an, uh, for me doing this project, it has been an unfathomable year because time after time, news item after news item, it just doesn't feel like there's ever been one moment that you could have like a Watergate and then things go back to normal. It feels like this tsunami of Watergate moments throughout the entire year and so much great journalism and writing and, and, and you know, tireless challenges have finally seemingly been vindicated, but now there's still this fluff that's all happening here. How are you guys both feeling? I feel better than I did a week ago, (laughs) so... That's, I guess, the place to start. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have to say that, uh, uh, you know, uh, one thing that I found remarkable was how, uh, you know, despite everything that had been uh, suggested or or feared about what was coming, uh, I thought the election went relatively smoothly, Um, that there were no huge issues um, despite some claims to the contrary now, there were no huge issues. The ballots were counted and, you know, and uh, the mail-in ballots came in and were counted and took a little longer than it normally does. But there was no major, and obviously there was some, you know, shifting, but everyone who knew anything was predicting that that was going to happen based on whether mail-in ballots were counted first or last and things like that. So I have to say, on the one hand, I feel very good that, you know, we've wound up, uh, you know, that, that democracy seemed to have worked. Uh, on the other hand, I feel incredibly disheartened by many of the Republicans who, you know, you know I, I'm not surprised that President Trump has refused to concede. But the fact that so many Republicans have backed him in his somewhat ludicrous efforts that frankly, I think undermine uh, you know, the wonderful thing that was democracy that happened last week in terms of just the normal, you know, lots of people turning out and lots of people voting more than since I think 1900. Um, that, I, that I find, I find the behavior of those Republican senators, uh, frankly, uh, incorrigible. Yeah, it's, it's been a crazy time. I've, I've got a friend whose uh, mom worked, works in a polling office, he's a polling official. And counting votes in a contentious state. I won't, don't want to reveal which state it was, but she's in a content, you know, in, in one of those hot states, one of those top four or five that everyone was like, oh my God, if we get X, this is going to be a big one. And she just said, the polling was fine. Like, fine. It was overwhelming. It was the biggest numbers they've ever had. Um, they had armed guards that were there, which is slightly, you know, you know, in preparation for those intimidating things. And they had some more hostility getting into and out of their building. And there was a little bit of more, you know, additional precaution, obviously probably more stressful for their family than for those individuals. But it's just a really funny thing of like, oh, we counted them all. And there was not, not you know, nothing to report yeah. a few extra days of overtime. We took the time, we did it. And that's it. And yeah. so yeah. Um, it's, it's a really, it's a really strange thing. And in Oz for any Oz listeners and even for you guys who might not know, we kind of essentially have a popular vote. We have preferential voting systems for ultimately what is our two party system, similar conservative and more liberal, but in Australia, stupidly, the liberal party is actually the conservative party and the labor party is like our working class sort of democratic party. If you like, whatever, who cares? Stupid nomenclature. Um, but essentially the popular vote 
basically decides the election because in your preferential voting, you might vote for uh, one of our more independent or fringe parties for local seats and that can happen to get them in there. But you then decide, well, if they don't win that seat, where does that vote go? And, you know, you might go, well, I'm, you know, for example, in America, it's like, I'm a libertarian, I'm going to vote an independent, but I definitely don't want Donald Trump in. So the second person on your preferential voting, if it was America, you'd write, well, I, I want, I want Joe Biden to win. And then therefore that preferential just means that the popular vote wins. Um, and by all accounts, I think, what was it from the latest reading I had was Mr. Biden won, uh, the largest, uh, the largest popular vote in history, the, the, the largest vote ever, basically. Um, yeah, insane. Insane times. I think the thing that's disheartening to me, I agree uh, regarding the Republicans in office who are refusing to acknowledge the fairness of the election and that the democratic process worked. The other thing to me is that, yes, Joe Biden, the president-elect, won the greatest votes uh, ever before. The second person who won the greatest votes ever before is Donald Trump Yeah. in yeah. this election. And I think that was, you know, I think it, it, if you were hopeful of decisive, monumental outpouring of a rejection of Donald Trump, that you did not get. And I think for a lot of people, um, a lot of people who have felt like this administration um, be you uh, a woman, a person of color, um, uh, in the LGBTQIA community, that you have felt like rejected, you you felt rejected and demeaned and and um, attacked by this administration and this president. I think to see that 70 million people voted for him mm. in the face of that is the most undermining thing that has happened. Um, and I think that is going to what um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said, that is the bigger issue that we were always going to be faced to confront and now we just have the mirror being held up to us that it's not Donald Trump, it's us. Yes. Um, he obviously, he is obviously part of the issue. He's not the issue. And so I think, you know, it makes the road ahead uh, more complicated and a bit longer than any of us anticipated. But, you know, we're here, we're going to keep going. And now we got to set our sights on Georgia. And now, actually, uh, before Georgia, we have to set our sights back to 1976 Great. And, and, and back and back into the beautiful Gordon Willis lensed and Alan J. Pakula directed and William Goldman written scene that is about to unfold. Um, we have the most beautiful versions of Woodward and Burns scene that could ever have been imagined. Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman at their, I think, hair and uh, magnificent handsomeness peaks uh, on screen for everyone to look at. Um, I think the best thing we can do right now is to dive into the scene. I just want to give everyone a little bit of like inside, inside podcasting baseball. Josh Singer, who obviously wrote Spotlight, but also was a staff writer on the West Wing, has been pacing like a character on the West Wing for the entire recording. And I just, I have to say that because it's really making me joyful um, despite the topics of conversation we've had to cover. So Josh, Liz and I are going to watch this minute from all the president's men in the climactic moments of the film together. You guys are going to listen along and then we're going to come back and talk about it.
why couldn't you tell me it was a phone? Woodward says phones aren't. I'm happy we got a little. I'm happy we got a little Bradley in there. Uh, yeah, you got, got a little, little, that. little sliver of robots in there for you guys too. I. I like to imagine that that's how you guys collaborate and scream write together. That's just for me forever. That's how I'm going to imagine you writing on a Royal typewriter, taking turns. Um, uh, what a great scene in, uh, in the climactic part of this movie. Yeah. I mean, I think um, it's interesting. First of all, I have to address the pacing because I picked something up from Joshua while we were shooting the post on set, which is it's like, it's quite difficult to, uh, stand we you know stand still uh, on set for anyone who's who's you know just working and anxious and watching it all happen um josh rocks back and forth on his feet throughout <laughs> the entirety of production and now i do it too it's like a tick that i picked up that uh on the next movie i made i was on set and i was like rocking on my feet and i and somebody looked at me and was like what are you doing and i was like oh my gosh i turned i turned into josh that's what i've done <laughs> this is what i've taken um well i see here's one thing you guys don't know is that yes it's true i move you know i, I have a fair amount of anxiety i'm a true neurotic too and so i i walk around a lot helps me think but also i'm neurotic but part of the reason i'm so neurotic at this moment is because my wife has a terrible superstition around the movie All the President's Men. Really? Which is that, oh, really? Which is that any time she watches it, she's convinced something horrible happens. And so I'm actually forbidden from watching that movie. And the entire time we were making Spotlight, I was not allowed to watch that movie, even though I thought it might be quite helpful. Um, she, <laughs> she loves the movie, and that's the problem. She loves the movie, and she can count. She's watched it five times in her life, and each time something terrible has happened. So I literally just turned to her and she's like, what are you doing? And I said, I'm on a, I'm on a podcast for all the president's men. And she said, why don't you just run me over with a truck? So, <laughs> so, so. Did so you I, tell her you were doing it with me? Cause Laura Dave loves me. I did. That's the only reason she actually didn't rip the phone out of my hands and throw it on the floor and break it is because Liz Hannah's on the podcast. And so we're all right. Um, she's in the background <laughs> saying, you heard, you, you heard it. Listen, key, keen listeners will hear that. We can play that back in an instant replay, like at a sporting match. Love Liz Hannah. Yeah. Hanna. Yeah. Yeah. Did you not think this was information maybe I should have known five years ago? <laughs> what, that she loves you or, or that I was afraid no, of I knew her? that. No, when we were making the post, did you, did you, you, I love that somehow it's never been revealed that Laura Dave is afraid of all the president's men. Well, it wasn't relevant to the post because the post, all the events of the post precede all the president's men. So I didn't have to, you know, I still don't know anything about that piece of history. I only know about the history, you know, in 1971, 72. So there you go. That's fair. That's fair. I like go. to only learn my history from films as well. Yeah. Sorry, I, I'm going to now have to mute myself because the Woodward and Bernstein of my house, the dog and cat, are having a nervous <laughs> breakdown in my office. So that's where I'm at. Um, meanwhile, do you, know, do you know we've actually met Woodward and Bernstein? They actually came huh. to the premiere of The Post, and I think some of the highest praise was that they enjoyed the movie. Um, but so, so, you know, we, we've actually, and to me that was, I, I think it's one, you know, I never, you know, you, you move out to LA and you work with a lot of people and you don't ask for photographs and things like that. When we met Woodward and Bernstein, I couldn't help myself. I was like, I got to take a photograph with you guys. So it's you know, one of the few, you know, celebrity photographs I have in the home. So That's there's also like nothing, you know, you go to a premiere and it's fun and it's nice and you make a movie and like, there's people there that are intimidating because you want to work with them or, you're inspired by them or any of those things. 
our film premiere was at the museum in DC and it was the premiere was populated by people of the likes of, of Woodward and Bernstein who were titans in journalism and in DC <laughs> who had just watched the movie and then we came and had champagne with them or in my case, I watched them and circled them and then went and sat in a corner out of fear. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, there's really truly nothing more intimidating than sitting uh, in a theater knowing that everybody watching it knows all of the events better than you <laughs> yeah, and it's... everything better than you and they're just going to dissect it. Yeah, I can't. I can't imagine what that's like. And there's been one person, one other person who's been on the show, um, Kenny Turin, the great Ken Turin, who was an LA Times film critic, um, who's oh, now yeah, retired, yeah. Yeah, yeah. worked at the Washington Post during the events of Watergate. And and so when I was speaking to him, he was talking about you know the inherent romance of cinema because he goes, I literally sat in a at a desk that looked like that desk and felt like that desk and used phones that looked like that. And let me tell you, Blake, I didn't look as good as Robert Redford did, nor did I look as, nor did. <laughs> did, did it did it seem as exciting it was boring and he's like and that's the you know he's like that was a great lesson for me as a writer and a film you know writer about film is like there is an inherent romance to cinema you can't help it once you put a big attractive person's face on a you know a giant screen there's something romantic that's happening and, and um but you know i think i think if that should be your water test if you guys get a tick from woodward and bernstein that's that's as good as it gets yeah it wasn't it wasn't bad it was a pretty, it was a pretty good day. And it wasn't what's, what's going to melt some people's brains, Josh, is that so many people have talked on this show just anecdotally about enjoying both the post and spotlight and spotlight as a structured as, you know, as proto all the president's men as possible. So the fact that you couldn't watch it during the thing um, must've been all sense memory, but also just like it shows you the, I don't know, the, I guess the scaffolding of how to tell a story like this, it's to get in the weeds, it's to get into the, the, you know, the Manny Faber termite art of it all that, you know, procedure, you know, get into those nuts and bolts because that's where you can really sort of evoke the characterizations because they're just doing their job and they're really good at it. And then their personality yeah. starts to come through with all those actions. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, and th so the thing is I had seen the movie in the past and some of the things just don't go away. The door knocking, but also, you know, my one of my very favorite scenes in the movie is Redford and the phone, where he's literally yes. just dialing the phone and dialing and writing notes and having conversation, dialing, getting hung up on it and over and over again. And like, to me, you know, that was, you know, in some ways when we were doing Spotlight, you know, and so much of that came, and frankly, one of the reasons I didn't want to watch All the President's Men was because I didn't want that to infect you know, yeah. uh, uh, very, very you difficult. Know, the story, the story that I, that, that Tom and I were trying to unearth, and Tom watched all the presidents men. So, you know, like, and as a director, I think he needed to. So, um, you know, for me, you know, being able to be clear and 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 faithful to the story I was getting from those post reporters, in the same way that Liz and I in the post, I think, you know, Kay's bio, Ben's bio, we talked to a bunch of reporters down at the post. I think we were very much trying to write not Jason Robards, but Ben Bradley, right? And write, yeah. you know, and not write Meryl Streep, but write Kay Graham. And then let, you know, and and then, and then, unfortunately, we actually got a better Ben Bradley than Jason Robards, you know, to play. Uh, <laughs> I suppose that's debatable, but I think that's how we feel. Um, mm -hmm. uh, 
and uh, and uh, I think the real Ben Bradley dined out for many years that Jason wrote he was so cool that Jason Robards played him and I feel like if he was alive at the time that you guys made the post he would he would feel just as cool he'd be like I'm hey, if you thought I was cool when Robards it's Tom now, Hanks now I've me, run, now I've won two Academy Awards come on now <laughs> yeah. back to back <laughs> well and Hanks would I think uh, very much appreciate the one minute that you picked for us uh, to be solely focused on a typewriter for the most part and then about ben bradley that like is it, true. Felt, it felt that very true. uh tom hanks approved that um, is true that is true. yeah i mean i think the other thing that's interesting and josh and i talked about this a lot when we were doing the post um is that the post is not a paper chase yes. you know everything has been discovered by the time the events of the major events of the film take place and the the brilliance sort of of Steven Spielberg is making a moral and ethical paper chase yeah. somewhat dramatic and 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 make it feel like a thriller because that's really what the film the post is about whereas um uh, I think and that's why I think that all the presidents men obviously there's the compare there's the, I wouldn't say the comparisons but it's it's considered like a prequel and a sequel and like this, these events take place you know back to back is that but they're so starkly different because the Pentagon Papers was a story of how well, they became a superhero team and yeah. how then they got to do Watergate. And Watergate is the story of pure unadulterated journalism at its best. And the way that you have to um, pick at it and pull at it. And like some of my absolute favorite scenes of all the president's men are the scenes where Bradley's like, you don't have it. And yeah. you don't got it. And it's also just internally as a writer, like you always feel that with your first draft when you send it in, you're like, this is the best thing I've ever written. No <laughs> one will have any notes. And I am done. I'm done on this. And you're sitting there in anticipation waiting for it. And then the red pencil comes out and you're like, wait, what are you doing? Don't touch that. <laughs> no, no, it was good. It was good. And somebody turns to you and says, you don't got it. Well, it's, 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 it's funny because those are sort of anachronistic scenes now, right? Because now it would just mm -hmm. be like, yep, throw it on the web. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say that. Marty Baron will get mad at us. But but I will say one thing to what Liz is saying, which I think I think that's absolutely true. And in fact, like you know, to me that was always you know one of the things that I thought you know Liz's very first script I thought was genius in that it had it basically was a character piece, right? And it was really and you know the the way I thought about it coming off the spotlight was it was a different spotlight's a reporter's movie. This is a reporter's movie. The Post, Liz's movie is about downfront, right? It's about yeah. the publisher and about this one decision that Kay Graham has to make. With, and it's really the moment she firmly takes the reins of the paper, you know? And even though she'd been at the paper for six years, this is the moment really that, you know, she's in this marriage with Ben Bradley. It is very much tested. And she basically decides, I know, I know this business. You know, and I and she'd always been worried about the business side of it and yet manages to say, like, no, this is and and Liz, Liz's first script, the, the, the reason Liz's script, you know, was, you know, took off like a rocket was because she had done such a genius, genius job of of identifying that and telling and telling that character story. And, and so and so, you know, it really is a character story, whereas all the presence men I tend to think of as much more of a plotting this is how reporters do their work right yeah. and 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 in fact like i i think that you know yeah so, so it's it, it is really interesting the difference 
And I think it's one of the things that make the post and all the president's men, you know, interesting companions in the same way for me, all the post and spotlight were interesting companions because they were two sides. They really, you know, literally that's what they call it at the globe. They call it down front, or at least they did back in the day, you know, because there literally are two sides of the built were two sides of the building. There was the publishing side, which was the nicer side with the fancier offices. And then there was the reporting side, which, you know, looked like as it does in all the president's men, as it does in, you know, and you see that in the post as well. Um, and you see that in spotlight as well. You know, there's, there's literally a, a bit of a, of a, of a distinction. And so, you know, I, I think that's anyway. The, I spoke to a real, you know, the great Ingu Kang, who's a, a writer for the Hollywood reporter and a TV reviewer. And she, she, she coined a phrase, um, on the show, which is like, these guys are making consolations out of random dots. And I think that that's very much like a, that's the spotlight. And that's the, that's the, all the president's men energy is that you're, you're, you're going through here. I think of the post as an excavation. Like you said, it's a, it's a moral choice. Once you excavate and keep digging and this one spot, you know where it is. It's like, you know where the, the treasure is, so to speak, the news treasure, the newsworthy stuff, but it's actually then making a moral choice about whether you publish or whether you don't. And so, I, um, yeah, very different for those reasons, but also great companions. And you only get a sniff in the newsroom, really. You get, you know, uh, in the post, you're just kind of touching on it because it's not, you're not set there. Like, I think the down front is a massive part of it. It's, it's, it's Kay's politicking up front, which makes the sort of second major plot in that movie. Um, but I, I want to talk to you guys about this scene because, you know, you think of climactic moments, this movie, the way that it does climaxes um, seems so kind of ludicrous just on paper. It's like, wait, the climaxes are going to be silent and there's going to be classical, you know, the, our lives are in danger. Those reveal moments. You're not going to give these guys big acting moments. You're going to sit at a table you're going to crank up some music. You're going to type on a typewriter together. Um, it just feels like it, I don't know. It just feels like the perfect decision in hindsight, but also just like somewhat radical, uh, but just great. And I, I, I just can't get enough of this, this whole sequence and then leading up obviously to the Titanic Bradley scene we're about to see. Well, I think what's interesting about it, I agree with everything you just said. I also think this is the first time really in the movie that you're given stakes for um the two lead characters in a way that doesn't have to do sort of with it's not intellectual stakes it's not we need this to go well because it's our careers it's not um we want to impress ben bradley it's our lives are in danger you know yes. you, th it's actual emotional grounded real stakes for these characters and i think what's interesting about this film going back to you know sort of the post being a character piece is what william goldman and bakula are able to do in the minor character moments <clears throat> in this film yeah because this is not a movie where you take it home and you know you see what their home lives really are you know they're both bachelors and you've got great bachelor apartments in there and you know you get a little taste like there's a moment where you see like george washington is on bernstein's wall and like there's all these little moments that you kind of get a bit of it i love the reveal that woodward is a is a republican like there's like all these tiny little moments throughout <laughs> the film but and they're really, they're, they're, I would say, similarly say that the, the constellation of their characters, which does feel real and grounded, and you feel like the end of the movie, that these are characters I want to know more about, but I also am not vague about who they are, is Pakula and Goldman pulling those dots out of the sky and building <laughs> that from very little, you know, because the, the, 
if you'd say the A story of this or the point of this movie is telling the story of of the Washington Post and Watergate and telling the story of how this all unfolded. I mean, the history of this coming out, you know, months basically, you know, um, after everything went down is, is truly, this was kind of the, the version of the reporting of, of how this, of putting it all together. So I think it's really interesting in this moment, um, in this minute of, it is a grounded character scene of like, not only are our lives in danger, but then on top of that, we weren't wrong. Yes. You know, we we were right and we just didn't do it right. We didn't do it the right way. Like there's yeah. a scene that comes, I think it's either right before this or or moments before this with um, Deep Throat where he's like, you don't go after the big guy first. Like you build from within. And if you go after him first, then like you, you will ruin all the credibility. And there's something really interesting about getting into this moment where Redford has the, we did this wrong, but I know we're right on one side. And also FYI, our lives are in danger. And then on the other side, you have Bernstein saying like, we were right. And I know we were right. Yes. And so now it's, how do we get this together and not get killed? Basically. Yes. <laughs> we heard what we wanted to hear is one of my favorite bits of the, um, obviously people are hearing the the classical music in the scene and, and you can go and watch the scene. Um, but the, the classical music and the typing and Bernstein going, we heard what we wanted to hear, but Sloan said, I was ready to name Holderman. I was ready to throw him under the bus. No one asked me about Holderman. And so it's that moment where you go, uh, 100% they were right, but the sourcing of that he announced it in that meeting was the wrong thing to do. It was the wrong impulse. And it's like, you know, we're, we're, we're now six minutes away from this movie being over and we're ultimately at a moment where you're like, these guys stuffed up. This is a huge mistake. And right at the very end of the scene, we get, you know, we don't get Dapper Bradley in his, you know, crushed velvet suits. We get him um, in a robe at his home, um, which you guys have, uh, you I know, both. I think it's all Dapper Bradley. <laughs> all Bradley is Dapper Bradley. Yeah. First, the only thing I wanted to say earlier about, about you cast movie stars as journalists and everybody gets happy about it, um, Bradley was basically movie star handsome. Like he was really handsome and like had that, it was one of the most th- fun things for us to like talk about with Hanks and play with in the script it is like Bradley had this swagger and like yes. he had the Anne Roth, our incredible, you know, iconic costume designer, you know, would like talk about the suits that Bradley had made and like he had things custom made and he had all of these things like he was a bit of a clothes horse. He was a bit of a society guy. And like, there's something so delicious to me about Bradley as a character, because he's such an anomaly, because how are you a society guy? How are you somebody who loves all this? And you're a journalist. And the people that you're writing about are people that you are, we're just in the same room with, which is something yes. we we talked a lot about with the Post and we explored throughout the Post. But I, I, so I just want to stick up for Ben Bradley in the real <laughs> because he was a very handsome man. <laughs> and um, my, two of my favorite Tom Hanks performances of recent years, uh, Charlie Wilson's War and The Post, because it, it do, he does get to have a bit of swagger. Like he's not, he's usually the nice guy and he can be nice and all those sorts of things. But when he's playing a sort of slimy politician in some ways and a drinker and a raconteur, and then as Bradley, he's got a bit of swagger and cool and like bluster and we're going to kick ass. I kind of think he can really do that. It's very underrated. His, his ability to do that as an actor is very underrated, I think. And so it's very fun that you guys get to play with that too. Josh, 
Sorry, yeah, I, 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 w- I would agree with that. I would say Tom Hanks is, is a surprisingly underrated actor. He can pretty much do anything. I, I have to say, you know, we all, we all knew Meryl was going to blow us away. And we all were excited to work with Tom. But, you know, he turned into a different human, you know, and that was just amazing to see and not something you necessarily think of Tom doing. And yet he does it effortlessly. It was really, oh, I shouldn't say effortlessly. I think he puts a lot of effort into it, but it looked effortless to us. Um, you know, it's interesting. First of all, this sounds like a great film. I'm going to have to watch it again <laughs> sometime. Uh, you know, because uh, like the, the, the specifics sound really terrific. I will say, um, it's funny because the one scene that I did watch uh, when we were writing was I watched the uh, I watched the scene that comes next, which is the speech. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you guys, you know, you got the government in the United States. You got the, you only got the country and everything else, but you know, I wouldn't worry about it. It's just the country and everything else. But more than that, you know, you fuck up. I'm again, I'm going to get mad. Right. Which is just, just one of the greatest speeches. And actually I felt a lot of, you know, I, I worked, you know, I worked very, very hard. There's a speech at the end of spotlight that Marty Baron gives, which is basically, you know, when Keaton's basically admitted that, you know, it looks like we had it and missed it and he's feeling horrible. And, and Baron says, uh, you know, pointing is basically stumbling on all around the dark and you turn the lights on and, you know, there's, there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of blame to go around. And he said, and then says basically go home, you know, you need to take a minute fine, but I'm going to need you back at work on Monday, ready to go. And, and that speech, I was terrified because I, you know, I felt like the bar was really high because I wanted to meet the bar of, uh, and Tom speaking Tom of an underrated speech like speaking an underrated times. actor Lee Schreiber yeah yeah, Far yeah. Out. And, and, and in that movie it's just yeah we, we got out. He's good. I mean he just is killing that movie but um but 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 that speech you know the the the, the speech that comes in the next scene was always a a you know it was it was a terror for me in matching it and fortunately the stumbling around the dark bit was literally verbatim from Marty Baron himself. And, and I just thought it was beautiful and poetic and true. And so that, that you know, so I got to put that in and the rest of it, you know, was what we wrestled over for, for a long time until we got it, got it right. Um, uh, so that is one scene that I have watched. I will say this scene is particularly interesting because this was a scene that Tom, Tommy and I, I, I didn't watch this scene and I love it for the Pacala of it. I mean, that guy, Pacala is, is the best when it comes to thriller. Mm-hmm. You know, like you can rattle off, you know, everything from the Pelican Brief to this. Josh knew the three correct words to make the my heart Pelican just go brief. Oh, <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, it's just, it's such an amazing, right? And he's so good at those moments, right? As those like, oh my God, what's gonna happen moments. I mean, Pelican Grief is a great example, you know, like Julia Roberts and Denzel are just amazing in that. And, uh, and, and similarly, you know, uh, Parallax, like he's just so good. And that typewriter moment is just such a amazing directorial choice and a way to heighten, you know, heighten these stakes. But as a, so as a, as, as, as someone who, who, who loves cinema and loves direction and loves Pacala, I just love the scene. As a writer, it's a very different thing because this is something Tommy and I talked about. To me, this is in some ways the most bullshitty moment in the whole movie, <laughs> right? 
Because they're like, I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> Were their lives really at stake? I don't think so, right? And this is something Tommy and I wrestled with in terms of spotlight. Because we thought a lot about like, you know, what do we do? Like, are, should there be a threat from the church? Are their lives at stake? But the reporters said like, no, we never thought our lives were at stake. They said we got leaned on, but not in any way like we thought like our lives were at stake, right? And, and it and became clear for us, for the reporters, it was much more of an emotional, uh, uh, you know, the, the stakes were much more emotional in that they were all Catholic, yeah. you know, uh, uh, other than Barron and Bradley, right? But the four spotlight reports were all Catholic, or mo- you know, mostly lapsed, and all had some, some real emotional stakes, and then there was a little bit of leaning in the community. Unfortunately, you know, there was enough true stuff in Keaton's, in, in Robbie's relationships. Robbie had relationships with people who were very connected to the church. And, and there was enough real in there that we could have the scenes. Well, I was just, uh, you know, just going to say, if you talk about Robbie and Marty and Spotlight as an example, they kind of like sort of two halves of what the real Ben Bradley is. Cause you know, Robbie's the guy who's, you know, pressing the flesh and knowing everyone and having, I guess the most right. uh, social stakes, you know, as, as Bradley talks about with like, you know, how would yeah. I report this if, if, if JFK was in, if JFK was in office, as you guys sort of wrestle over in the post, it's like, how would you do it? And it's like, there comes a time where he goes, no, I'm just going to do it. Like we are going to do this. We are going to report that's on right. this and it is going to be what it is going to be. Um, and that's that final moment you talk about with that speech is, is those, those polls. Cause yeah. again, Marty at the time is not as, wedded to anyone's relationships because he's well, the new kid well, in town. Well, well, right, right. Marty's the outsider. He's a Jew. He's, you know, he's not from the paper, you know, and he's, he's a true outsider. I think felt that way. And so, you know, it was, it was that sort of fresh perspective that allowed, you know, that's in some ways the whole reason that the paper went after this story. And Robbie's the insider who is, you know, very much tied and, you know, and in the same way, you know, it's the stuff we talked about in the post with, you know, Ben and, and, and JFK, you know, you know, Robbie's the guy who hasn't gone after this and, you know, and, and not, you know, I don't think Robbie was complicit in any real way, but like, you know, like there was a, a, a feeling of the paper, you know, there had been pushback against this, this, you know, priest and, and you know, they'd done a ton of reporting on this Father Porter in Fall, Fall River. And, and just the end of that, these 20 priests in Boston came up and they buried it. You know, and, and, and I think it was part of an ethos and a culture at the paper, uh, you know, that, that changed when Marty, Marty took over. And for Robbie, you know, he did have friends in the community who were going to get burned by this in one way or another. And so, and so the, the farthest we got towards a scene like this was a scene with our heavy, um, who's played by a wonderful actor whose name is escaping me at the moment, but who leans on him and basically says, Robbie, Robbie, Robbie you don't want to do this, you know? And, and, and Robbie comes back and says, you know, so this is how it happens. A guy leans on a guy and the whole, whole town looks the other way. Right. And, 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 and that's the closest we got to something like this in terms of stakes. Right. And it was because we, you know, Tommy and I were very committed to grounding in the real. And so there's, there's, you know, it's like, I definitely think this, this moment is, you know, it's it's a powerful moment in this movie, but to me, it's the moment that is most movieish <laughs> in yeah. in a movie that is that is that is very much not movieish. It is very much verite. That is very much grounded. That is very much about the work of journalism. So it's 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 sort of funny to me that this is the moment. This is the minute that. Uh, that, that we're but it's also about. like as a 
as movie-ish as it is, it's breaking a lot of rules that we yeah. writers are told, which is like, don't make somebody have to read something on screen. Like it's, <laughs> unless you're subtitling something, unless it's, yeah. a, unless it's a foreign film, like it's, just, it's the whole thing we deal with now, which is like having text messages in a movie or in a film, like, or excuse me, in a movie or in TV. Like how do you deal with text messages? And you always have to have a device. You always have to make it more interesting. You have to like figure out a way to do it because nobody wants to just read text messages. This entire scene is right. one minute of them typing things together. And yes. then the last minute of this movie is just the teletype of saying what the headlines are, you know, getting to Nixon resigning. Right. I think that's like fascinating to me that this moment and like, yes, the, the in some ways, I guess this is the climax of the film because it's sort of like they know they're right and they know that they're, they just have to figure out how to get it. Um, and whether the the stakes are false or not of like of their lives being in in jeopardy, which I agree sounds fairly ridiculous, but um, who knows? Uh, but regardless of that, like it's over a typewriter. Like it's 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 done without actual like physical communication or, or verbal communication. So I think it's that's so, it's, fascinating it's so, to me. It, it's so weird because um, you know obviously the deep throat character. And as a real source as Mark felt, I would imagine whether Mark felt in real life said that to like, just establishing, like if it was Mark felt who said that to Woodward at the time, he's number three in the FBI. And what's so brilliant about the way that this has been layered in the movie is when they have that, when they have that interaction with Joe after one of their big story breaks after the bookkeeper scene comes what I think is the most terrifying scene in the movie, which is they're just talking outside and you see a lineup of tourists going to visit mm -hmm. the white house and a random person in the line turns the camera over and just takes a snap of them together. And mm -hmm. it's like at that moment, we're picking up our surveillance of these guys again, they actually are scratching the surface and some, some things we don't want them to, or maybe some things that we think are, you know, going to damage the public thing. So uh, I, I'm, I'm a little bit, I, I totally agree. It's like, it ups the stakes in the most movieish manner of all time. But I also wonder like, do I really think that the Nixon administration would be against, or especially, you know, the, the CIA and the disruption and the uh, but even coups if, in other even countries? It's is not, yeah, even if it's not going to a fatal place, it's at least going to a discrediting place. Yeah. It's at least going to a, we're going to destroy your yeah. lives and your yeah. careers, um, yeah. which I think throughout the sort of 20 minutes before this, this moment where they talk about the rat fucking and everything they did um, for against democratic candidates for years, like, you know, I think that is established that that's something that this community was doing at the time. So I, I find it really fascinating. The other thing I find fascinating, and this goes to what you were talking about, Josh, with Spotlight and with The Post, you know, with the with, with both of those, the, the main characters of the film are people who have experience. Now we can debate whether or not it, with the post, like Kay Graham having the experience that she knows she has and whether she puts that in, into action until the end. But you're talking about people who have lifelong experience throughout throughout at least the, the majority of the film. This is about two guys who are basically beat reporters. You know, it's like yeah. at one point uh, uh, Bernstein is like, well, I had that article about what, like he's bragging about an article that like was above the fold that was <laughs> one time, you know, like, and, and so these are guys that are hungry and trying to make it and they don't have the experience. One of my favorite speeches in the whole movie, which I probably talked about last time is when um, Bradley talks about J. Edgar Hoover and he's like, you know, I 
reported that they were going to replace J. Edgar Hoover and the next day he was appointed for life. And like that's this those are the stakes when you have Tell Ben Bradley journalism. Tell Ben Bradley I said fuck you. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> it's so great. And so I think that's that's going to that's what makes this interesting and makes their sort of the moment in this film where the stakes feel real because they are almost childish in a bit. You know, they they don't know if any of this is real. They, I mean, if they were 10 years older and more experienced, somebody could have said to them like the CIA or the FBI is surveilling you. And, and you would just brush it off. You have been like, fuck you, that's not true. Like they're not gonna, I'm, I'm a journalist. Like they're not gonna do not that, that's you know, whatever. But like, I'm a journalist, that's not it. And, and so I think it is believable that these guys, I mean, we forget they were in their what? Mid to late twenties in this at this point. And they're excitable and this is an exciting thing and they have at this point no idea how actually far it goes um so i i find it really fascinating that this is the scene i also think the piece of music that was chosen is really fascinating um it's really dramatic and not necessarily you i think you could have chosen a piece of music that's more melancholy or more even more thrillerish but this yeah. is almost like a joyful it is a, quintet you yeah know? it's it's very joyful it's like it's you know everything's like pumped up it feels like something you would see walking into like i don't know like an 1800s like gala or something like that it's like playing and you're like oh everyone's happy and everyone's gonna dance or whatever um but you know, it's just more proof that Bernstein's apartment is made probably for entertaining ladies than Woodward's <laughs> apartment is in this movie, as we've discovered in deep analysis of it. Um, yes. But yeah, it's, it's, there's those incongruous moments that are just so great um, all throughout this movie. But in this scene, I just love these guys are sitting down at the typewriter to do the biggest reveal of their entire careers over this music and just not talking. And that, that fact that Woodward blows straight past Bernstein and Hoffman's face Mm-hmm. that he won't talk to him, that he turns up the music, that that realization, I think it's one of Hoffman's best performance moments in the movie because his face just captures that anxiety and that fear and that what the hell is going on. And then that realization that something, you know, Titanic has been dropped into Woodward's lap. Yeah. I think it's fascinating. I think, you know, I also love that in this movie, they're sort of flipped a little bit in who their normal roles are at that point of Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford. Like, Robert Redford is like a sex icon and he's playing this very like Steve Kornacki khakis type of guy. Um, there you go. There's your little election uh, Easter egg. But um, like he feels like very buttoned up and square and Dustin Hoffman is flirting with any woman that moves mm. throughout this entire movie. Mm-hmm. And like he has swagger throughout this whole entire movie. And so it's, it's and so and Redford's so hot. Redford's so hot in this movie that he's actually made one of my guests buy corduroy, um, and so uh, and it's 2020. So uh, that's that's a huge it's a huge achievement, and it's definitely made me consider: do I do I just get a really wide tie and buy corduroy pants? Do I, I just try do. it? I think I do. It's ISO. Why not? You know what? It's it's also it's 2020. <laughs> Who's going to see it? We're all in quarantine. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, no, I mean, I feel like, um, I also think the editing of this film is really interesting and particularly mm. this piece is when you cut away to see the reaction, how long you let them type it out. I think there's some, um, you know, as we were talking about with Pakula, with with Goldman, with the performances, with the editor whose name I, I don't know, unfortunately. Yeah, Robert Wolf is the editor. He was, um, and for folks who, if you if you don't know him or just immediately by name, he was sort of in the Peckinpah school. This is one of his first films that he edited wholly as the sort of 
the, the the main editor, but he'd been in a lot of editorial departments for Peck and Par movies. So um, that's fascinating. Yeah, that yeah. that's interesting because it brings the energy of like the quickness that's happening in this, and at the same time, the long like takes that you allow, and yes. so it's bringing it's maintaining the energy. And I think like these moments where this this scene feels very energetic to me, even though it's on a typewriter because of what is chosen to be cut away from and cut to, but then you've got the split diopter scenes that like you just live in those forever and you allow the them to be lived in. God, this has been fun. I just want to say that right, right, right off the bat. Um, we've talked extensively, probably more about two people talking at a typewriter than often does happen. <laughs> um, so I, I just want to give an immense thank you to you both for, um, for coming on the show so near the end and so in the own turmoil of your own countries and giving us some amazing insights um thank you so much liz for coming on the show so early and and i think we were actually going to talk to josh way back then and then the world happened in 2020 so um i'm i'm so thrilled that you guys got to come back together um to, to be on the show as a dynamic duo the sinner as we are, have now decided but look just thank you both so much for your time and uh and indulging me in this insane project i really really appreciate it our pleasure thanks for having us no problem that was the incredible dynamic duo of Liz Hanna and Josh Singer. You can find them both on Twitter. You can find Liz, who's vastly more active than Josh on Twitter, um, at It's Liz Hanna, I-T-S-L-I-Z-H-A-N-N-A-H. And you can find Josh Singer at at JSinger10 on Twitter. Um, guys, thank you so much for listening. We are ramping up, um, having two people who've screened movies for Woodward and Bernstein and written about the Washington Post and and also won an Academy Award for Spotlight. Incredible days. Um, you know, the aspirations for this show were small, but um, so incredible to talk to these guys. Thank you so much for listening. OneHeatMinute.com, at Pod for following anything that's happening with this show, at One Blake Minute for myself, and uh, we'll catch you on another episode tomorrow. Another wonderful guest in Helen O'Hara.